Good morning, everyone. Welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Larry Kay, and I'm, I'm the, uh, I will be the host for the presentation this morning. And today is Sunday, August 14th, 2022. Let me give you the share ID numbers for uh, Friday, August 12th for the 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time meeting. That number is 19,290. That's 19290. Dashing. <clears throat> we can down. hear you, Ken. There you go. Thank you. And for the 10 a.m. meeting, that number is 19,291. That's 19291. This morning, A Vision for You presents a Summertime Big Book Q&A uh, with our speaker. Um, and uh, so this morning, uh, you know, we get people from all over, right, all over the globe. And uh, all the way from the uh, frozen tundra, the desolate Arctic conditions of Scottsdale, Arizona. We have Harlan G. He's going to be, uh, Harlan's going to share for approximately uh, 30 minutes on, on both the, uh, the illness and recovery process. And his presentation is going to be followed by an opportunity to pose questions as well. So we're going to get right to it. Um, you know, there's, there's, you know, this man has experienced a couple of miracles. One, you know, one was, was obviously um, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps, you know, that obsession was lifted and uh, which is, you know, we still live in the age of miracles. The other one, you know, some dispute, but in 2016, there was another miracle. Uh, the Chicago Cubs won a world series that happens about every century. But uh, but but uh, I want to I want to welcome uh, Harlan to uh, to the line. Harlan, please uh, join me in welcoming Harlan. Good morning, Harlan. Thank you, Larry. Thank you very much. I'm very very glad to be here, and it's an honor. And I am Harlan G. As Larry said, I'm from Scottsdale, Arizona. I'm actually born and raised in Chicago. Don't ever forget that. And there's Lake Michigan straight running through my veins. But I'm real glad to be here this morning. And I have been, I am a compulsive overeater through and through. I have been a compulsive overeater from the moment I was born. I am not one of these people who has a story about how all of a sudden one day when I was X years old, I couldn't control my food. Or I, I have, I have uh, vivid memories of being pre-kindergarten and hearing people screaming and yelling at my mother and father about how fat I was getting and how much food I was eating and what are they feeding me and what are they doing and why are they letting me eat so much and what the heck is wrong with you for letting this kid get so fat. Those are very, very vivid memories uh, that I have in my in my brain. And I have a friend of mine who uh, is a, a person who specializes in trauma healing, and she told me the issues are in my tissues, and I never forgot it. And I remember that uh, when I got to be about five years old, I would say five, maybe six years old at the oldest, people started screaming directly at me, why are you eating so much? And they shamed me, and they, they were very verbally abusive to me, and they scared the crap out of me. I was a little boy. 
and they would say things to me like, uh, fat boys don't get good jobs, fat boys don't get girlfriends, fat boys don't get to wear uh, Levi's. Uh, Levi jeans was, was a big thing in the 60s. I was born in 54, but I'm more a product of the 60s. Fat boys don't get to wear the latest clothes. Fat boys don't get to do this. They don't get to do that. And what they did not understand was that more than anything in this world, I desperately wanted to acquiesce to their demands. There was nothing I wanted more in the world than to be the thin boy that they all wanted me to be. But I just could not achieve it. And I remember when I was six years old, I went on my first diet and I tried to control my eating. And I remember very, very distinctly, it was the time of year where we would sell candy bars. You'd sell them for Cub Scouts, or you'd sell candy for your band, or you'd sell it for the school, or whatever it is. But I was in Cub Scouts when I was like six years old, and my uniform didn't fit. I couldn't, I couldn't button the shirt of the uniform. And my mother was just crying her eyes out, and I just I couldn't bear the shame of it. And and I remember eating one of those candy bars while I was on one of these diets, and I ate one, and then I ate them all. And my mom and dad had to pay for the candy bars that I was supposed to be selling, but I ate them all because once I ate one, I didn't really have any understanding at all of the physical allergy. And I found out later on in my life that there were two factors, two characteristics of this disease, that there is a physical allergy, which even at that age, from the moment I was born, made it impossible for me to stop eating certain things once I had started because those things, those ingredients, the sugar, the flour, the whatever that was, it would set me up with an actual physical craving for more of the same. And I could not stop once I had started. And I was six years old and I was so disappointed in myself that I, I just hated myself. I just hated the fact that even though I really wanted to be skinny, I kept eating and becoming more and more fat. And when I was a little boy, there was a, a, a kind of gym shoe, and it was called PF Flyers. I don't know why I'm even relating this story, but it's a story that's in my mind. And they used to advertise on the TV, PF Flyers, jump higher, run faster. And I nagged my mom for PF flyers because I couldn't run as fast as the other little boys could, and I couldn't jump as high as they could jump because I was fat. And I got the PF flyers, and lo and behold, I could jump no higher. I could run no faster. Oh, was I disappointed, and I just blamed myself. And while I'm on the subject of blaming myself for not being able to stick to my diet, what I'm going to say to you is this. When I got into recovery, and this is, I'm going, I'm fast forwarding many, many years. When I got into recovery and I really started gaining some momentum with my abstinence, something occurred to me that really was buried deep inside of me, that for me, this is not just a disease of food and weight. For me, it's a disease of shame. It's a disease of self-loathing. 
It's a disease of doubt. It's a disease of fear. It's a disease of never being fully a part of rather than apart from any group. Even though I was standing in the middle of a group of friends, I never quite felt like I was just another bozo on the bus. Always different, always better than or worse than anyone and everyone in my environment. And that is the ego and that is this disease. For me, it is not just a disease of food and weight. It is a disease of catching myself in a mirror or catching myself in a reflection of a store window and hating so desperately what I see that my desire to die outweighed my desire to live. And that happened to me at a very, very early age because no matter how hard I chase being thin. I just kept getting fatter and fatter and fatter and fatter. And when I was nine years old, I went to the doctor and I was nine. It was 1963. It was right before Kennedy was killed in 63. And the doctor started screaming at my mother in Yiddish and my mother was screaming at him in Yiddish and I was put on very heavy duty amphetamines. I was put on diet pills when I was nine years old and I was given these pills and boy, they were right. When you are on these amphetamines, these pills, the, the desire to eat is just annihilated. There is just no desire to eat whatsoever. Of course, I couldn't sleep. You sleep about 15, maybe 20 minutes a month when you're on these pills. And every feeling, every emotion was bursting to the surface inside of me because I had nothing to beat it back. And what I did not understand at that age, at nine, what I did not understand until decades later is that food was never the problem in the first place. That food for me and people like me is the solution to the problem. And when I had no solution to the problem, I felt every feeling so acutely, I just wanted to jump out of my skin. I couldn't, I couldn't stop saying, I get accused of this now, I couldn't stop saying the same thing 300 times when I was on this medication. I couldn't hear what anybody was really saying to me. It just kept sounding like Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, 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 wah. That's what everything sounded like to me, but I did not eat. But when you'd crash down on these pills, you'd eat Illinois and most of Wisconsin because it was like a roller coaster and you'd be just coming down and you'd crash at the bottom and all of a sudden my appetite was just so acute and then you'd take the pill and then you wouldn't eat again. But what I did not understand, and I don't want to sell you on the idea of getting these amphetamines as a solution because trust me, they are not. I was to gain hundreds and hundreds of pounds after this after these pills. But what I found out was that food was never my problem, that food was indeed the solution to my problem. And if food was the solution to my problem, what was the problem? The problem emanated from a twist of the mind, and the twist of the mind in its desire to feel good, to even out these emotions, would call to me in a very seductive way to go eat certain foods. It never said to me, eat steamed broccoli, never said to me, eat boiled fish, 
never, never said those things to me in my entire life. It was Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. It was Chuckles. It was the Good Humor Man. It was ice cream. It was Oreos. It was all those things that I wanted to eat. On the corner of my house was the Red Hot Ranch. And the Red Hot Ranch had those greasy, well-done fries and the hot dogs and stuff. And, man, I would go down there and chow like there was no tomorrow. And what was the reason that I was doing this to myself was because food was the only solution that I knew. And that the solution was to answer the buildup of human emotion. That when I am feeling fear, as humans do, all human beings have fear. All human beings have happiness and sadness and shame and guilt and remorse and anger. All human beings have these emotions. But in a normal, non-addicted human being, they can level out those emotions when they get too toxic by doing simple little things like going to the gym, taking a walk, playing with the dog, reading a book, taking a bath, listening to music. They can do these simple things, and I've seen them doing them for 68 years of my life. I'm 68 years old. I was born in 54. You can do the math. But the bottom line is, in my brain, because of how my brain is wired, when I'm unusually happy or sad or guilt-ridden or shame-ridden or fearful or angry or whatever, my brain will call to me in the most seductive way to eat some food like I just described. And I eat the food And for nine seconds, it's magic. It's sort of like in The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy goes from black and white to color and everything is beautiful and groovy and wonderful. And it's just an emotional, soul-wrenching, ah. The only problem is that feeling only lasts for about nine seconds. Dr. Silkworth, in the doctor's opinion, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, calls that feeling the effect. The effect, he says, is so elusive that we will pursue it even though we know that it is injurious. We admit that it's injurious, but we cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. Does that mean I think today is Christmas or that I think today is Wednesday? No. What it means is I also have something else that's different about my brain, and it's called the mental blank spot. The mental blank spot is the sidekick of the mental twist, and the mental blank spot is that built-in forgetter, and I forget that every time I eat Oreo cookies and every time I eat Almond Joy bars, I'm never happy in the end, and that the farting and the diarrhea and the morbid obesity and the fact that I feel different is worse, not better. But the mental blank spot prevents me from remembering, oh, these foods are driving me south when I indeed want to go north. Don't ever let anybody tell you 
that in the 1960s we were all doing our own thing and you know don't ever let anybody tell you that nothing could be further from the truth we all wanted to look alike and dress alike and be alike and everything in the 1960s was skin tight garments and form fitting shirts and everything if you look at the Beatles or you look at some of the groups from the 60s or you look at some of the like the mod squad and all that the hair was very straight and long straight hair on the ladies and the men were all wearing skin tight clothes I couldn't wear skin tight clothes are you kidding me Anyway, so by the time I was 10 years old, they took me off these diet pills. But before they took me off, they put me on a different diet pill. Same effect, lost a lot of weight, made me crazy, made me meshuggah. And the bottom line is, it was doing me a lot of harm. And I'll let you in on a secret. I know that you're not supposed to dwell in the past. I'm not, no regret, or, but there is a part of me that would like to go back to my mother in 1963 and go back to this doctor, Dr. Jacobson, and ask these people, what the heck were you thinking putting a nine-year-old on these amphetamines? Do you know what you were doing to me? How dare you do that to a child? I don't care how fat I was because there was something that nobody told me. Everybody told me I was wrong and I was bad and there was something about me that just was weak and sniveling and I lacked discipline and I lacked willpower and I became very emotionally and mentally defeated by this disease. I was beat down by the world. I was beat down as a child by its rejection. But nobody ever told me, you have an illness of the mind and an illness of the body. Nobody told it to me. Nobody said to me, you can't cure this, you can't control this, and you didn't cause it. And the guilt and the horrible fear and the horrible shame and the anger at myself that I carried with me for decades because I felt that this was happening because I was weak and it was happening because I lacked discipline and the whole world told me that I could pull myself up by the bootstraps. Well, I didn't have bootstraps. I didn't even know what bootstraps were. I knew that people on TV like Roy Rogers and Gene Autry and the Lone Ranger, they had bootstraps, but I sure as heck didn't. And nobody told me, you have an illness, you have a sickness, you are allergic to these foods, which causes a physical allergy, a physical craving, and you have a mind that works differently than other people. Nobody told me that until I came here many, many years later. Life was getting by me as I entered puberty. I was already, by the time I was 13 or 14, I had an overhanging stomach. I was physically emasculated by this disease. I was emotionally emasculated by this disease. And if somebody was to tell me that I was not to go on a date with a girl until I was 35 years of age, I would have wanted to die. I would have taken a shard of glass and I would have killed myself. But I just kept hoping against hope that maybe someday, 
maybe somehow something would happen for me. And puberty was murderous for me because I had all the feelings of a little boy and no way to express them. I was the fattest kid around. There was no girl that was going to want to hold my hand, no girl that was going to want to dance with me, no girl that was going to go on a date with me. That just wasn't going to happen. And I had to pretend and deny my feelings. I had to pretend that I didn't have the feelings because I didn't know how to cope with it otherwise. By the time I was in my 20s, now my father was elderly. My father was 54 years old when I was born, and my mother was 36. My mother was mentally ill. My mother had three distinct personalities. She could be a screaming, raving lunatic. She could be a three-year-old, or she could be a very together person. You never knew what you were going to get or how long it was going to last, and it was a source of shame for me. My father was from another country. He was born in Russia. He was the victim of murder and mayhem long before World War II. A lot of people associate anti-Semitism with World War II. Let me assure you that anti-Semitism was alive and well, well before World War II. In 1914, my father's extended family of 40 people were obliterated off the face of the earth in a murderous rage of a Saturday night before Easter Sunday, and he, there was one little boy, 14 years old, that escaped, and it happened to be my dad. And he escaped, and he got to the Baltic Sea, and when he got to the Baltic, as he had been instructed to do, he got on a ship when a man who he did, my father didn't have a ticket for the ship. My father had nothing. He had just lost his family. He had just witnessed their murders. He had heard the screaming and the gun shots. He had heard the life going out of a six-week-old baby and a 75-year-old person. He was there. He was traumatized. He got out when his brother Charlie, his brother Yecheskel, pushed him out the door, and my middle name is Charles as the result of my uncle Charlie saving my father's life. And there was a man at the ship, and the ship was called Baltic to Baltimore, and the man let him in and said, go ahead, just as the ship was pulling out, and he let my dad go in the ship, and my dad went down to the steerage uh, area of the ship, and the other immigrants fed him for the seven-day journey across the ocean. And that's how I got born. And I'm as grateful to that man for saying, go ahead, as I ever could be to anybody. Because if he didn't say, go ahead, I wouldn't be here today. So getting back to recovery. My mom died when I was 22. My dad died when I was 24. It was a horrible, horrible existence for me, not only because they were dead, but because my food habit was so acute that I could not function as a human being. As I told you before, I was emasculated physically. I was emasculated emotionally. I was a eunuch. I had no money. I, I lived in filth and squalor in my apartment on Albany Street in Chicago, Illinois, in West Rogers Park. I'm wearing a Mather High School t-shirt as I'm talking to you this morning, and that's where I went to high school. But the bottom line was is that I was getting evicted from my apartment. I had no money. I was writing bad checks. I lied when the truth would have served me better. I lived in filth. I lived in squalor. I had nobody. I had nothing. 
I saw no purpose to life. I was eating and eating and eating, and I was out of control. I was 335 pounds by the time I was a senior at Mather High School in Chicago. I was 500 pounds by the time I was a sophomore in college at Roosevelt University, downtown Chicago. I was over 600 pounds by the time I graduated Roosevelt University, and I was over 700 pounds in the in the late 80s after relapsing and coming back with a vengeance I gained more weight than I had ever carried before in my life but on that on that special day back in 1979 it was February the 2nd 1979 two wonderful friends pushed their way past the pizza boxes and the Oreo cookie containers and the chocolate milk containers, and they pushed their way past the empty bags of Doritos and Fritos, and they said to me, I owed them a lot of money, they said to me, you're coming with us to a meeting of Overeaters Anonymous. I could not stand. I could not sit. I had dime and penny-sized ulcers in the back of my legs where pus used to run out. My lower extremities were so swollen that pus used to come out of ulcers in my skin. I couldn't walk. I wasn't wearing underwear. I, was, I had towels shoved between layers of flab to keep the skin from rubbing together so I wouldn't get contact dermatitis, which is one of the worst pains I've ever had in my life. I hadn't brushed my teeth in years. I hadn't washed my hair or brushed my hair. I had no hygiene. I had no life. My father had just died that November. This in November of 78. This is February 2nd of 79. I went to, against my will, and, and, and let me just make a point because I know I'm running out of time here and I want to get to the Q&A. As horrible as my life was, as hideous as my life was, as nightmarish as my existence was, I did not want to go to the meeting. I kept saying, I can do this myself. What is it that calls to the human ego that says, in spite of every piece of evidence to the contrary, I don't want help? What is it about the ego? What is it about this disease and I realized that the disease is an abuser. And what the disease does as an efficient abuser is it cuts me off from every piece of support that I could get. It cuts me off from support that would help me and keeps me isolated in the disease so it can work its killing magic on me. I came into program. I did not recover right away. I went through several years of meetings. I went through some different things. I had a graduation from OA. It was beautiful. They said, welcome to McDonald's. Can I take your order, please? And in about 1982 or 83, I had graduated, 83, I graduated, and I gained an enormous amount of weight back. And I came back in 86 at 700 pounds. I maintained an abstinence. I got married. I moved to Eugene, Oregon. I relapsed. And now I have 23 years of the most blissful, beautiful abstinence. I cannot even begin to tell you. And I am in recovery for the last 23 years. 
I got in recovery on December the 29th, 1998. Uh, quickly, I'll tell you what happened to me in my last debauch. I was in full relapse, and in, uh, we were living in Eugene, Oregon. And in 1998, Halloween, the 31st of October, was a Saturday night. And on Friday night, the 30th of October, 1998, my daughter, who was three years old at the time, my daughter Hannah, she lives in Brooklyn now, Brooklyn, New York, in a place called Crown Point. It's either Crown Point or Crown Heights. I can't ever remember. I think it's Crown Heights, Brooklyn. But it, it might be Crown Heights. It might be Crown Point. But it's Crown something in Brooklyn where a lot of very, very, very orthodox Jewish people live. It's either Crown Point or Crown Heights. Don't quote me on either one. But Crown something. Anyway, so it was a Tuesday. And in Oregon in October, it rains all the time. The rain is so ubiquitous, you don't even know it's raining. But anyway... I pulled into the garage at 3.30. I used to start work at 5.45 and pulled into the garage at about 3.30, and she was crying in her mother's car. It wouldn't come out until I promised not to go to the Halloween spaghetti dinner because she didn't want her little friends and her teachers and the parents of her friends to see how fat I was, and she was ashamed of me. And I did not go to that spaghetti dinner. I stayed away from that spaghetti dinner. They just went, the two of them. I stayed home with the dogs. And let me tell you, those were three of the loneliest hours I think I've ever spent in my entire life. And it still took until December 29, 1998, before I finally put down the last vestiges of the foods that I was hanging on to. And on December the 29th, 1998, I had a day of abstinence, complete, clean, beautiful abstinence. And that is my abstinence date to this day. So many things have happened to me, I cannot begin to tell you. Most of them were good. Although I've been divorced, I have a very, very non-relationship with my child who lives, as I said, in Brooklyn. That's you know, hurtful to me. There's nothing I can really do about it. But there has been joy and there has been inclusion in a wonderful, wonderful organization called Overeaters Anonymous. This is the most glorious way of life imaginable. I, If I had a pill that could cure this disease, I would destroy it because I would not deny you, the precious people who are on this line, either this morning on August the 14th or listening on a recording. I would not deny you the wonderful, beautiful, glorious, bountiful journey that is either what you're doing or in front of you, that there is nothing in this world more glorious than the absolute joy of loving the people here and letting them love you and partaking in this way of life. The birthdays, that are, there's an OA birthday coming up in January. We're going to celebrate our 63rd birthday in gala fashion in Los Angeles, California at the LAX Hilton 
and it's going to be the 13th to the 15th of January. We're going to be 1,500 to 2,000 of us. Come and join us. See the joy. See the beauty that this recovery has. When God is in my life and the power of the recovery is unleashed, miracles happen. And there are miracles for you. There are miracles for all of us. It is the most glorious way of life. Oh, the people you'll see, the places you'll go, and the people that you'll meet will become a part of who you are. And I wish every one of you the most glorious recovery. So what I'd like to do now, I want to cut this short because I could go on and on. I'll just summarize by saying I've lost a bit over 500 pounds. I have 23 years of abstinence. I am alive. I walk three miles a day, six days a week. I have an economic life that works. I have a home. It's not the most glorious home. It's very, very modest. Some of you have been in my home. Very modest, but it's mine. And I pay the mortgage every month. I'm never late on a bill. My credit is excellent. I have bought brand new cars on my signature. I didn't even have to put in the change in my pocket. And I have had miracles beyond my wildest dreams. To quote Roseanne in the title of her book, I have had miracles beyond my wildest dreams, and one of them is being here this morning with you. Before I turn it back to Larry for questions and answers, because what we did was we wanted to have question Q&A a couple of times a year. Leah and I talked about this, but there's a couple of rules I want you to follow. Number one, no math questions, no algebra, no geometry, no trig, no calculus, no math. No way, no how are you going to ask me math questions. Number two, no food questions. Come on, guys. Don't waste our time with food questions. I'm not a nutritionist. I don't play one on television. I don't know what you should be eating. And my food plan should be of no interest to you. I'm a 68-year-old man. You're not. So what you know let's let's dispense with the food questions okay larry i'm going to turn it back to you let's go for a good hour here of q a and let's see what we can come up with maybe we can answer some questions that are nagging at people larry it's back to you thanks okay thank you so much harlan thank you for uh for your share and so we're going to go to a q a and as harlan said he only wants both math questions and food questions. Oh, wait, I got that backwards. No math and no food questions. So if you have a question for Harlan, um, please uh, unmute yourself by pressing star one and give me your uh, first name and last initial. I'll see how I can know how I can do. Who who, who has a question? Andrea B. Andrea. I'm going to repeat some of the names in case Pedro. Okay, let me give you the names so far. So let's let's do that. And, and once you know it, a truck pulls right up by me here. And they did not get my memo this morning. Um, okay, I heard Nadia. I heard Katie, Elena, Andrea, and Pedro. Let's. Who else uh, did I miss? Margaret B. Uh, Margaret. 
There was someone other than Margaret. I see Toby W. Okay, I'm gonna uh, Toby. I got you, and I'm gonna put Aussie. Al- did I get that right, or did I just read really it's, botch that? It's Aussie. O S S I. O S S I. Okay, Aussie. And then I got Toby. Who else? Johanan. Johan. Okay. Well, why don't we start with that? Uh, Harlan is going to give us the next six hours today, so we'll – oh, wait, no, that's not true either. But let's start with – I got Nadia, Katie, Elena, uh, Andrea, Pedro, Margaret, Alcee, Toby, and Johan. If you're not Nadia, um, if you please mute yourself again. And Nadia, you're up first. Good morning. Good morning, Mary. Thank you both of you for your service. So grateful that you guys have been here for a few years. My name is Nadia B. I'm gratefully recovered, compulsive reader in Connecticut. Harlan, what do you say to people that can't withstand the pain of steps four through nine, go back to the food? Um, and, um, you know, how do you deal with that when you're working with someone? Do we, um, you know, what are the instructions? Do we go to step one? How quickly do you usually work with people like that? Um, and just, you know, practical question, and you've been here a few more decades than I have. Okay. It doesn't, I'm not an expert on anything. I'll just tell you how, what I do to answer the question. When people pick up food, they go back to step one. And I explain to people as best I can that recovery will not take place in, an, in a person, in most cases, until the fear of eating more food outweighs the fear of giving it up. You have to be afraid of eating more food most of the time. You have to have suffered an enormous amount of pain. You have to be beaten, bludgeoned by this disease before you will give up the food. The food is your lover. It's your friend. It's your confidant. It's your best buddy. It's there for you when no one else was there. And for about nine seconds, it works when nothing else does. That's a very hard thing to give up. But what the person has to have been through is the ringer, the the meat grinder, the wood chipper of this disease. You have to be beat down. And I say to these people, have you been beat beyond recognition? Are you done? And if they're not done, I will know it because they will continue to pick up food. If they continue to pick up food, I let them go. Not the first time, maybe not the second time, but certainly the third time they pick up food. I will listen to what it says on page 96 and on page 96 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I listen to this book because I use it as my textbook. It says here at the top of page 96, do not be discouraged if your prospect does not respond at once. Search out another alcoholic and try again. You are sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you offer. I use that same advice for dating. (laughs) We find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you. If you leave such a person alone, he may soon become convinced he cannot recover by himself. To spend too much time on any one situation is to deny some other alcoholic an opportunity to live and be happy. So, 
what I do is I say to myself, I'm not really helping this person. I want to help this person. My intention is to help this person, but the road to hell is often paved with good intention. They need to hear a different voice. And there should be nothing scary about steps four through nine if you have been beat down enough. Four through nine is just basically the inventory process. There's nothing in step four that's going to be revealed that you don't already know. Who do you resent and why do you resent them and what do you resent and why do you resent it? You already know that. What do you fear? Who do you fear? Put it down. Who have you harmed sexually? Put it down. What's so scary about that? We make it into some big deal, some big thing, and it's not. So, Nadia, to answer your question, if the person picks up food, they go back to step one. If they keep picking up food, you're not helping them. Let them go. And I'll just let you go on this note, and I'll move on to the next person. When I'm in a situation where I am more invested in a person's recovery than they are, I am the one that's in the Al-Anonic condition, and I better get my tush over to an Al-Anon meeting or something because I have a hula hoop, and this person's recovery is outside my hula hoop. I have enough work to do inside the hula hoop. You don't want to recover. You keep picking up food. You need to hear a different voice. I'm not helping you. I'm here for you, but I'm not going to sponsor you. Nadia, I hope that helps. Thanks. Thank you. All right. Okay, next up we have uh, Katie, followed by Elena. Katie, good morning. Katie G. Hi, Larry. Hi, Harlan. Hello. (laughs) I love you guys. Um, Harlan, can you please talk to me about something that I am feeling very convicted about, which is I missed the second part of the definition of abstinence. Abstinence is the action of refraining from addictive foods and addictive food behaviors while working towards or maintaining a healthy body weight. So what my my question is, is where I put the emphasis, the um, addictive food behaviors while working towards a healthy body weight. Like don't eat no matter what, no matter what, don't eat, don't eat the whatever is very clear to me. But what about this other thing? What does that mean? Talk to me. Okay. The the definition of abstinence by OA is we abstain from compulsive over compulsive eating, not compulsive overeating, compulsive eating, and compulsive food behaviors while working toward or maintaining a healthy body weight. What are compulsive food behaviors? Now I'm going to predicate this by saying. I do not have an anorexic or bulimic bone in my body. I do not get a thrill or a high or the effect from restricting the amount of food that I eat. The only way that I can relate to this is through what I hear from other people who are anorexic, bulimic, and there's three forms of bulimia. There is regurgitation bulimia, there is laxative bulimia, and there is exercise bulimia, and most bulimics practice more than one. But those are the three forms of bulimia. And then there's the anorexia. If I am in recovery, I cannot engage in compulsive 
eating behaviors, compulsive food behaviors, which means not only do I not eat over and above my food plan, I eat all the food on my food plan. In other words, if my food plan calls for 3.2 ounces of oatmeal in the morning prior to cooking, that's what my food plan calls for. See, I didn't want to do food questions, but okay, here we are. That's fine. Um, 3.2. 2.2 is not okay. 1.2 is not okay. It's 3.2. It's 3.2 ounces. I eat all the food on my food plan. Now, there are people that are listening to this that are not anorexic, that may not be bulimic. What, what they have are, are activities that they will engage in that are dangerous for them. For, for example, for some people, like me, I don't eat standing up. If I'm eating, I'm sitting. I don't do BLTs. I don't do bites, tastes, and licks. All food is consumed while sitting at the table, or I don't have a table. I live by myself. I do watch television when I'm eating because I'm not going to sit there and stare at the wall. But for some people, not me, Watching television while you're eating is a problem. For some people like me, I don't eat in a car. Eating in a car is old food behaviors for me. I will drink water in the car. That is it. No food for me is consumed while I'm in a car. None. Zero. Not ever. I exercise, and I exercise reasonably. I walk three miles in the morning, and four days a week, I walk in the pool at the, at the JCC here by my house in Scottsdale in four and a half feet of water. I walk 1,000 yards to build up my knees and my hips. That is a reasonable amount of exercise for me. I do not, I do not over-exercise. I keep everything in the perspective of recovery. So just to encapsulate, the definition of abstinence is to, re, to refrain from compulsive overeating, compulsive eating, excuse me, and abstain from compulsive food behaviors while working toward or maintaining a healthy body weight. Now, I'm going to throw one more thing in there, and this may bring in controversy. I am not speaking to the bulimics or the anorexics here because I know you are coming at this from the exact opposite side of the spectrum. I am speaking for me because mine is the only perspective that I'm qualified to answer for. I, along with these behaviors, must weigh myself once a week. I need accountability. I weigh and measure proteins. I weigh and measure starch. I weigh myself once a week, not once a day, not once an hour, not once a minute. I weigh myself once a week. I need absolute assurance that I am indeed at or, main, or, or working toward a healthy body weight. I cannot trust how my clothes fit, and I'm making air quotes as I say how my clothes fit. I have to get on that scale. I come from extreme morbid obesity. Part of my recovery is 
I have the right to know how much do I weigh. And if I'm gaining, which I don't normally do, okay, I'll gain a week here, a week there. I'll be up one, last, not last week, two weeks ago I was up 1.7 pounds. I don't know where the hell that came from. I was up 1.7 pounds. The next week I was down 0.8 pounds, so most of that was lost back, and I didn't change a thing. But if I keep seeing the patterns of me gaining weight, that sounds the alarm. So those are the things for me that have to be addressed. Those are the compulsive behaviors that I need to address and that we all do. I hope that answers it, Katie. Thanks so much for the, the, uh, the question, Katie. Okay, next up we have Elena followed by Andrea. Good morning, Elena. Good morning, Larry. Good morning, Holland. Thank you so much for <clears throat> everything that I've learned from you over the years. Uh, I appreciate both of you, and thank you for all those here today. So my question is, um, what do you think, Harlan, what do you think about the word recovered? So it was coming, so I'm glad you're getting it out of the way. Good. Okay. The number two question asked in vision, number two, is what is the difference between recovering and recovered? The number one question in vision is, can I be heard? May I be heard? Can I be heard? May I be heard? That's the number one question. The number two is about this word recovered. My strongest advice to you is to read the big book. Look at what it says on the title page. Do you have the title page? If you have the title page, go back to it. And it says, Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. Nobody ever said there was a cure. The difference between recovering and recovered is... A recovered person has had a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps so as to produce a condition of neutrality around the use of food to sedate themselves. That's my definition. The definition is on page 84 of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's the one I most like to use. And page 84 describes this feeling of neutrality this feeling of neutrality. That's what happens when you've had a spiritual awakening. Nobody ever said there was a cure. Nobody ever said there was anything but recovered and recovering. If you're recovered, you've had a spiritual awakening. If you're recovering, you're working toward a spiritual awakening. But to know whether what class you're in, look at page 84 of the big book, and on the bottom of the page it says, and we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol, for by this time sanity will have returned. I don't want to read the rest of it because you can do that on your own, but it's at the bottom of page 84. And Elena, I'm going to let you go on this note. If that word is hanging you up, ignore it. Don't let a word stand between you and recovery. Don't let a word get in your way. I hear this all the time. People call me all the time about this recovered, recovering. It's a word. Don't let it stand in your way. Keep right, right. And I get all of that. The only one, one brief question. Why the alcoholics don't use it and we have to use it? it is just we don't have to use it. 
There is no rule in here that says you have to use that word. Don't use it. You don't want to use it? Don't. You don't want to listen to it? Don't. Ignore it. Ignore it. Don't let it get in your way. Don't let it fester till the point where you have a resentment against the whole thing of it because that resentment will drive you back into the food. It'll kill you. That resentment against that word has the power to actually kill. So you have to ask yourself a question. Is this the hill that I want to die on? Am I willing to piss away my recovery over a word? There's nobody says you have to use it. You could go the rest of your life and not use it. And it would be perfectly fine. Don't use the word recovered. Don't use the word recovering, but work your steps like your hair's on fire and don't worry about a word because remember that resentment has the power to actually kill. Let's not, let's not eat chocolate over a word, okay? Let's not eat chocolate over a word, okay? All right. <laughs> Thank you for the question, Elena. And uh, next up, we have Andrea, followed by Pedro. Andrea, good morning. Good morning. Can I be heard? Mm-hmm. You can. Oh, excellent. Um, so good morning to everyone. Thank you for everyone that's doing service. My question actually was answered, so I'm going to pass. Thank you, Andrea. Okay. Thanks, Andrea. Okay. Next up, I think uh, Pedro had a question on uh, – on the square root of something or other, Harlan. So, Pedro, no good morning. No math. Yeah, first of all, first of all, I want to ask uh, the number one question, uh, can I be heard? Ah, there you go. That's the number <laughs> one can. question. In, in, can I be heard? May I be heard? Can I be heard? May I be heard? Yeah. Yeah, yeah thank you. Thank you so much, Harlan. Uh, thank you for uh, uh, announcing the birthday party. If you are on this line, please. Do yourself a favor. Do the best you can to go. You know, he's absolutely – that's where I met Harlem and Larry and, 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 his, and, his, and Jan. And uh, it's, it's in my heart. It's, it, I can never forget the joy that I felt in that place. Uh, and I'm so happy that you announced that. And I'm so looking forward. I got something to look forward to in January. Um, you know me, Harlem, you know, you, you, I, I think the last time I spoke to you, you told me, you know, you're always coming back, you know, for the food. You know, I've been coming in and out for over 10 years here, you know what I mean? And and it's like, why can I stay here? You know, why can I, I stay here? And, and, you know, and my disease, uh, uh, I start doing little changes here and there, and before... I know it. It gives me permission to go back to you know more food or more this. And before I know it, you know the gain I start gaining weight. Anyways, uh, this is um, I feel I feel recovered this morning. I feel recovered, and I'm I'm doing a new food plan. And it seems to be working. I'm, I'm experiencing. Pedro, I'm gonna get fired if I don't. <laughs> if you can yeah, find that question, we gotta get to the question <laughs> yeah. here, Pedro. Here's the Thanks, my friend. Here's the question. I decided to eat breakfast after 9 a.m. Lunch after 1 p.m., dinner after 6 p.m. Do you think that's a good idea? I, I have no clue. I have no more idea when you should eat. I don't know anything about when you get up. I have no idea. Not a clue. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Pedro. All right. Next thanks, up, we Robert. have Margaret. Yeah, thanks, Pedro. 
Next up, we have Margaret followed by Alcee. Margaret, good morning. Good morning. Good morning to the both of you and to everybody on the line. Um, and thank you so much for all the work and the the hope that you got, that both of you bring. Um, so, simple question. Um, Harlan, I heard you address uh, a, a great deal about the physical aspect and the material aspect. You know, you said you now have a house and you can pay for your car and all the rest of that. Could you um, just address how your spirituality has changed, how your connection with your higher power has evolved, and what that's like for you today? Thanks. Thank you, Margaret. That's a wonderful question. I'm really glad you asked it. I have found in my journey of recovery things that I never expected to find. It would be like me going to um it would be like me going to China and finding artifacts from Israel or me going to uh North Carolina and finding things uh that should be in California. I came in here in 1979 hoping to lose weight. I came in here really hoping for a way of eating that would allow me to eat everything and anything I wanted and still be thin. That's what I really wanted. What I found was so much more. I found that my relationship with what I'm I'm going to use the word God and I, I do a big book study every Saturday morning, and we're in the chapter, We Agnostics. And it's just a difficult chapter to speak on most of the time because people just bristle with antagonism, so much of it. I'm going to use the word God because that is the word that is most comfortable for me. I can't answer Margaret's question without using it. But if that word God is offensive to you, please substitute it for whatever is not offensive to you. I'm not here to offend anyone. I'm not here to make anyone uncomfortable. But here is what I found. When I was a child, I looked at God and I said, I didn't look at God. I looked up in the sky and I said, God, I don't like you. You, I wanted Rob and Laura Petrie for parents. You gave me Max and Virginia Grabowski. Very different. I want to be thin and I'm fat. I want to be rich and we're poor. You made me everything I didn't want to be and didn't make me anything of what I wanted. I didn't dare to dream dreams when I was a kid. I didn't end up in a career that I felt would have fulfilled me. And, and I'm still working at 68 because I'm still paying for the mistakes that I made many, many years ago. But to answer your question, here is what I will tell you. I feel the presence of a powerful God in my life all the time. I found that for me, this was a disease, not just of food and weight, but it is a disease of self-loathing. It is a disease of existential doubt. It is a disease of existential hatred of myself and God and others. It is a feeling apart from rather than a part of. It is not a feeling that is very comfortable for me. And in the world that I was born into, I was born into a world that I couldn't reconcile in my mind. It didn't seem fair to me. It didn't seem just to me. It didn't seem right to me. 
And as hard as I tried to manage the externals, selfishness manifested because I wanted everybody to go according to my script, self-seeking and fear. What I found with God is a, is a acceptance of myself. My self-talk was so horrifically abusive. My self-talk was so abusive that my wife, my then wife, said to me, if you spoke to your friends the way you speak to yourself, would you have any? And I find myself talking to myself now saying, you're smart enough to figure this out. Why don't you call so-and-so? Why don't you see if there's a YouTube video? Why don't you do the things that you know you can do to remedy the situation? And sometimes I do have the right answer, and sometimes I don't. My spirituality today is such that I have the confidence that come what may, I'm going to be okay. It may not go according to my script. It may not go according to my wishes and desires, but I'm going to be okay. And I could sit there and I could pray in the synagogue until the walls fall in and it will do me no good. What I do today is I take action after action after action after action because this is not a program for people who need it. It is not a program for people who want it. It's a program for people who do it. And very specifically, how I manifest the growth of my spiritual life and how I get closer to God and further away from Oreo cookies is found, of course, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous at the bottom of page 14. And Excuse me, at the bottom of page, yeah, 14. At the bottom of page 14, I have a warning, I have an instruction, I have everything I could want. And the paragraph just simply reads, my friend had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs. What are the principles? The principles are the steps. There's a lot of things running around now where the principle of this is hope and the principle of this is honesty. I'm not knocking that. If that works for you, great. But that's not what they're referring to. When they say the principles, they're talking about the steps. Bill just went to a writing class, and they taught him not to keep using the same words over and over and over again. You know, you know, you know. They taught him not to do that. Particularly was it imperative to work with others as he had worked with me. Imperative means important above all else, to work with others as he had worked with me. So I sponsor, and I have a sponsor. Faith without works was dead, he said, and how appallingly true for the alcoholic. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life, how do I do that? Through work and self-sacrifice for others. He could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. Stop right there. No matter how evolved my recovery gets, I will never rise above the level of a human being. Clancy Immeslin used to say that. Rest in peace. And Clancy used to say, no matter how evolved my recovery gets, I will never rise above the level of a human being. And then it goes on to say, if he did not work, he would surely drink again. If he drank, he would surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed with us. It is just like that. So I work with other people constantly constantly and i realize that these fears these thoughts these ideas these behaviors around food margaret that i believed were secret and unique unto me 
Remember that the ego has three jobs. Make me right. Make me feel good right now. Make me different from everybody else. That these behaviors and thoughts are not so different from everybody else. And I learned through repetition of fifth steps up the yin-yang that I am just another bozo on the bus. And my relationship with God today is a beautiful relationship. It's not the antagonistic I hate you and I know you hate me relationship that I developed as a child. And my relationship with God today is close. And my relationship with God today gets better every day. But I stay in touch with him through prayer. And then I remember what it says, that he is the principal, I am the agent, he is the director, I'm the actor, he is the father, I'm the child. So every single day, I take action after action that I really don't want to do, but I find that it's beneficial. And so I hope that answers your question today. And I find myself in places I didn't know you could get to with this disease, and I like those places. Even though my life is not according to my script, I'm okay. Thanks, Margaret, for your question. Always love Awesome. You. Thank you. Thanks, Margaret. And, and, Margaret, that's the short version, so call them up and I'll give you the long version. <laughs> yeah, right. I, got, I now get a little carried away sometimes. Sorry about that. No, that's okay. All right, next up we have Alsi followed by Toby. Alsi, good morning. Alsi. Hi. Hi. You know what? My qu- you just answered my question, so thank you. I'm good. Thanks, Alsi. Okay. Thanks, Alsi. All right, next up we have Toby followed by Johan. Uh, Toby, good morning. Toby. Toby, Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, yep. morning friends. Good morning. Good morning, Toby. Uh, hi, Holland. Hi. Um, what I'd like you to talk about is your early days of abstinence, going through the withdrawal. Mm-hmm. Would you talk a little bit about that? Withdrawal sucks. It just it, If you're a sponsor, you, you need to prepare your sponsees. You're going to get nauseated. You're going to have headaches. You're giving up your best friend. You're giving up your 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 lover, your confidant, but you're going to give it up for a better life. But it is very, very difficult. But it is not so difficult if you just remember this. Every single time I think I'm fighting food, if I even smell that I'm fighting food, I must take action. Here is what cannot happen. Whether it's the early days or you've been here for a hundred years, Every single time I feel that I am fighting food, I have to get out of myself and take action after action after action. What does that mean? I have to make a call. I have to pick up the 5,000-pound phone rather than the very light Twinkie. And I am going to be nauseated, and I am going to have a headache, and I am going to be irritable, and I am going to be an MFer for a couple of days there. I'm going to be an MFer for a couple of days there. No question about it. But it's going to pass, and it will not kill you. And ask yourself this question. How many times do I want to go through this? Because I only have to go through it once. I don't have to go through these withdrawals 20 times unless I keep picking up. 
and the rewards on the other side may not be visible to the new person just yet because you're going to talk to them about promises and you're going to talk to them about uh, a way of life that's better than anything they've ever had before, and all they want is a chocolate turtle. That's, they can't see past you know, McDonald's fries. So you have to really nurse them through as best you can. But it is going to suck. And we, we don't make, we don't mince words about it. Hey, it's going to suck. But you can get through it. And if it doesn't kill you, it's just going to make you stronger. Yeah, 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 but I want Oreos. Too bad. Suck it up, buttercup. I got something better for you. How's those Oreo cookies working for you? Do you like your life? If you liked it that much, you wouldn't have come here. So let's knock off the BS. Let's put the food down. Let's put it down completely and entirely, and let's get to work. And if at the end of 30 days, you are absolutely convinced that this is not for you, we will completely refund your misery. We will completely refund your nightmarish existence. You have a misery back guarantee, nightmare back guarantee. That's what I say to them. All right. Thank Thanks. Thank you. Good Thank to hear you. your voice, Toby. Good to hear your voice, Same, honey. same here. All right. Thanks, Toby. Okay, next up we have Johan, and uh, then we'll open it up to more questions. Johan. Oh, my God. Good morning. There's a delay. Hey, he's, 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 he's from Scandinavia. Hey, Johan. <laughs> he's all the way from Sweden. It takes takes some time go. to connect. <laughs> hey, hey guys! Uh, great to hear you this morning, Larry, Harlan, and all the questions. Also, awesome. And uh, I was wondering. Uh, I often feel like step twelve is like the forgotten step in a way that people are too scared to start sponsoring and they get back into the food. And that's my experience in the past as well. As long as I didn't do that, you know, I couldn't stay abstinent either. So uh, my question is. How important is it to sponsor, and why is it so important? Thank you. Well, Johan, I'm really glad that you asked that question because this is a very, very important thing. You know, I have a friend who lives in New Jersey, and she uh, she is a wonderful, wonderful uh, messenger of recovery in OA, and she has an expression that she likes to use. She, she says, if you're afraid to sponsor – you better be afraid not to sponsor because this is a 12-step program. This is not an 11-step program. And I just read the paragraph on page 14 that is so important. And on page 14 at the very bottom, the paragraph that starts with my friend had emphasized the absolute necessity. This paragraph that ends at the top of page 15 is letting me know in no uncertain terms that without sponsorship, I'm not going to recover. Let me repeat that. If I don't sponsor, I'm not going to recover. And the the big the big pitfalls here are, well, I'm afraid I won't do it perfectly. No one does it perfectly. If the person wants to recover and you're using the big book as your basic text, you cannot hurt them. You can only help them. If they don't want to recover, 
It's not going to matter. If they don't want to recover, you could be Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob Incarnate, and they're not going to recover. The majority of people that I have sponsored over the years have not recovered, but I have recovered. And it says on page 89, the very first sentence of this chapter, Working with Others, practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. Practical experience shows that nothing will so much as ensure immunity. Isn't that what you want is a guarantee of immunity? Here it is. Work with others from drinking as much as intensive work with other alcoholics. Isn't that what we've been looking for our entire life? Why would we not do it? You need help sponsoring? We are here to help you. There are others you can turn to for help. You need, you're not sure what to do, here's a very, very quick lesson plan for you. The doctor's opinion, Bill's story, there is a solution and more about alcoholism should be gone through. And they are step one. That's all step one. The doctor's opinion, Bill's story, there is a solution, more about alcoholism, step one. Paso prima in Italian. I learned that from my friend Barbara G. Passa Prima is step one. I don't know how to say any of the other steps. Chapter four, we agnostics, step two. Chapter five, how it works, steps three and four. Chapter six, into action, steps five through 11. Working with others, two wives, the family afterward, two employers, step 12. Now, the reason that I included to wives and the family afterward and employers in Step 12, the instructions for 12 are in Working with Others, Chapter 7. But when we practice these principles in all of our affairs, what are our affairs? The spouse, significant other, the family, and the job. Those are the places we, we want to work the steps. So that's why those chapters are there, and that's why it says in step 12, practice these principles. What are the principles? The principles are the steps. So if we're going to practice these principles in all of our affairs, they have a chapter about the wife, the family, and the job in the book. And that is how this is laid out. You come in here and you start reading the book, you don't realize it's a textbook. And it's a beautifully laid out textbook. So, to encapsulate, to quote my friend Kim in New Jersey, you're afraid to sponsor? You better be afraid not to sponsor because without step 12, you are not going to recover. So, to head off one other question before I turn you loose, John. Driving someone to a meeting or being the secretary and the treasurer and all this, those are great service, inner group, all great things. Is it a substitute for sponsorship? You bet it's not. It is absolutely not a substitute for sponsorship. You want to do those things in addition to sponsorship? Great. You better be sponsoring or you ain't going to recover. Thanks, Johan. With that, I will pass on that one. All right. Thanks, Johan. So we're going to, um, one of the things that Leah told me was, uh, she said it like this, 
If you go past 10 Eastern Standard Time, Larry, fired. <laughs> no, she didn't say that. <laughs> but we'll try to come close. So if you have a question for Harlan on uh, no math, no food, oh, no baseball no questions, none of that. Okay, uh, give me your first name and last in this show. Camille G. Hannah Hanna <clears throat> Melissa. Melissa. Sharon C. And Judy. Okay, let's let's. Okay, we're going to stop there, you guys, because um, I just don't want to get fired from this gig. Okay, so we have Melissa, Camille, Hannah, Sharon, and Judy, and uh, let's start with Melissa. Good morning, Melissa. Hey, good morning, Larry. Thanks so much for your service this morning, and uh, thank you, Harlan. It's always a joy to hear Thanks. you and and to learn and listen. Um, so I want to, you know, I love on page 25 when it talks about the central fact of our life today is the absolute certainty that our creator has entered our hearts and lives in a way, you know, be miraculous. I want to know about, um, you do such a good job of, of step one of really driving in the misery. <laughs> I want to hear, like, at what point did you have that absolute certainty about God entering your heart? And, and and doing the miraculous for you. Did it happen at the end, or did you feel it along the way? I just I want to hear more about that. Thank Melissa, you. thank you for the question. It's always such an honor to hear your voice on the on the line. I learned so much from you, and I love you so much. And I can't wait to see you in Los Angeles. But to answer your question, I feel it all the time. Twelve years ago, I, it was May of 2010. I was in my kitchen. And my wife came in, and she told me that she was she wanted a divorce. And I know my wife, there's really no talking her out of anything. You can't talk her into things. You can't talk her out of things. And she told me at that time that she was involved with someone else. And this was very, very tough, tough for me to handle. Um, and I survived. I don't know how I survived. I don't know how I got through that, but I did. And I didn't get through it with Almond Joys and Oreo cookies. I got through it because of the people and because of this recovery. And when I was too unbelievably weakened because I had just had knee replacement surgery days before uh, I was to sign the divorce papers. I had just come home from the hospital, and I had my knee replacement, so I had just had major surgery, and I was signing divorce papers. How in the world am I going to do? How am I going to do this? I hadn't been on my own in a long, long time. I was married 17 and a half years. I was with my wife 18 and a half years, and now she's with another man. Very, very deep, deep trauma. And I survived it. I survived the loss of a child. Now, my child is still alive, but I have, she, she and I have no contact. I don't know why. I don't think she knows why. But we don't have a relationship. I survived, and I'm in recovery. I have survived economic ups and downs. I survived the everyday ups and downs that is life. My God is alive. My God lives in my heart, and he accomplishes those things for which I could never do myself. How in the world is a sick, compulsive overeater who hates himself, 
who feels like an intruder on the world, who feels apart from rather than a part of, who feels doubt, who existentially feels like I don't belong in the world. How am I going to go out and be a part of that world? The only explanation is the power of God and the power of this recovery. I feel it in the faces of anybody that I see that's in this program or not in this program. And when I most can't find God, when I'm really looking for God, I always find him in the same place, in the face of one of his children. If I reach out and get out of myself long enough to say, hey, Melissa, how are you? Hey, so-and-so, how are you? Hey, so-and-so, how's it going? And I stop and listen. And for three or four minutes of my life, not be the child that's ranting and raving about, I don't, I don't have the toy I want. I don't have the cookie that I want. If I can truly listen to what you say, Melissa, and I can hear you, and I can listen to you, maybe you're having a problem at school. Maybe you're having a problem with one of the kids or one of the teachers, whatever that may be, or your own family or your own whatever. Maybe your foot hurts that day. I don't know. But by getting out of myself and listening to you and hoping that I can be of service. And sometimes all I'm really capable of saying is, I'm sorry that that's happening. And that may be the extent of the help I can give. But by doing that and getting out of myself, I feel lifted toward God and I'm further away from a Tootsie Roll and a pizza and closer to God. So it's an action program. My creator definitely does enter into my heart and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. How in the world do you explain that my cardiologist said to me a year ago, the mathematical chances of, he says, you really weighed 689 pounds at one time? I said, yes. He said, I thought it was a mistake. I said, no, I weighed 689 pounds at one time. He said, that's impossible. I said, no, it's not. He said, you know, the mathematical chances of you still being alive are zero. I'm still here, and I'm abstinent, and I'm part of OA, and there is no earthly explanation for that. There is no earthly explanation for that. Melissa, I hope that answers it. And I'm so glad to hear your voice this morning. You lift me up when, you, when you're on the line. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Melissa. Next up is Camille, followed by Hannah. Camille, good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Harlan. Good morning, Larry. Um, Harlan, I'll, I'll ask the question is, um, it's about meeting attendance. And, um, I'm sorry, how, I didn't hear what you said about what? The question, the question is about meeting attendance. Going to, okay. Right, going to OA meetings. Okay. And um, also, I'd love to know more about that Saturday morning big book meeting you talked about. So, will you just talk about showing up for meeting attendance? How is that for you? Uh, I go to two hours of a vision for you every single day, Monday through Friday. I do not miss Sunday special edition on Sunday. If I'm out of town and I have to miss it, I make sure that at my earliest convenience, I listen to the, the recording of it. 
I do not miss. I also attend meetings every day of the week in the evening on Zoom. I uh, have not gone to any live meetings in the last few years, but I attend on Zoom. They are Scottsdale Big Book meetings or Scottsdale meetings. You can get the Zoom information on my Saturday morning Big Book study and our Scottsdale Zoom meetings by going to scottsdalebigbook.com. And these are the meetings that I go to. That doesn't mean they're the only good meetings or the big, you know, whatever. These are the ones I go to every day at 5.30 Pacific time or Arizona time, I attend the Scottsdale meetings. You can find the Zoom information by going to scottsdalebigbook.com. They go from 5.30 Arizona time to 6.30, and then we have what's called the parking lot where we do exactly what we're doing here, questions and answers. We do it here for about a half hour or an hour, depending. And on Saturday night, because Scottsdale only meets, it meets seven days a week, but on Saturday, I do big book, just like I did today, on Saturday morning from from 10 a.m. Arizona time to 11.30 a.m. Arizona time, Pacific time now. Arizona's weird. We don't change our clocks. So we're on Pacific time now, and we'll be on Mountain time when the clocks change back. So you have to kind of adjust. But for Saturday morning, I keep it the same. Anyway, on Saturday night... We recommend the family afterward, and you can get the information on the family afterward uh, by, I believe, going to family afterward or something, or one of us will give it to you somehow. But that is a meeting that comes out of New York at 8 p.m. Eastern time. And also there is an excellent, excellent couple of meetings called, there's a meeting called Cornwall. There's a, that's on Saturday morning. There's Recovery Jam, Jam like what you'd put on toast. That's an excellent, excellent meeting. And then there is... Um, other people doing different big book things. You just have to kind of scout around. But that Cornwall meeting is on Saturday morning. It is phenomenal, just phenomenal. There's a lot of people on that Cornwall. And then there's Recovery Jam. So those are the meetings I can recommend to you with an absolute pure heart that I know that you're going to hear some really good stuff in there. There are other meetings, too, that I don't know about that I'm sure are remarkable. But I am a believer. You get your butt to meetings. I found the time to eat. I found the time to get the food. Now I better find the time to get my butt to meetings. Right. Thank you so much. Thanks you're so very much, welcome, Camille. Thanks, Camille. Okay. Um, you know, I, I miscalculated the time, so we have time for one more question. So Sharon and Judy, I can give you Harlan's number, his garage code, whatever you need. <laughs> but our next, our last question is from Hannah. Hannah, good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you, Harlan. You mentioned about going through the steps, and I'm just, you know, everybody seems to do this differently, and I'm just wondering, you know, how you, you know, how you do that. How do you take a sponsee through the steps? We go through the steps very, very quickly because I want to get you into a spiritual awakening as quickly as I can. I want to get you recovered. So we do a chapter a day. We do the doctor's opinion through chapter seven, and it takes about seven or eight days. Uh, I do not give an inordinate amount of time for step four. Uh, and you're working on your step 
nine, but on step four, I give you three hours. That's it. After three hours, it's pencils down. If there's things on there you didn't write, we have step 10. The only step you need to do perfectly is step one, and I don't want you dwelling in any of it. I want you moving through quickly. So we do a chapter a day, and we cover seven chapters in seven days, sometimes eight. I'll give you a day of wiggle room if something happens. There's just a chapter you're not getting. I do use my podcast to cheat, so I have them listen to the podcast and follow along in their book, and then when they're done listening to the podcast, if they need to, listen again, and then call me, and I will make sure to the best of my ability that they have grasped the information in the chapter. If they haven't, we'll discuss what I need them to know. But I want to make sure that they did their work and that they have an understanding of the chapter. But there's no reason that this process should take more than about seven, eight, maybe nine days tops. There are sponsors today that they want to make this into a very protracted thing. And you get to step six and you got to redrop the rock and then you got to do assignments on step three. There's nothing in that book that says you do written assignments on any step other than four and eight. There's nothing in there that says, now you write, now you this, now you that, now you that. There's nothing in there that says it. It's a quick process. The first guys, they went through very, very quickly after two days of abstinence, two days of sobriety, and that's how I move the people through. We go through fast. You've got the rest of your life to study it. You've got the rest of your life to learn it. Let's get you through and let's get you sponsoring. And that's where Clancy Immeslin used to say, you do not learn this program by absorbing spiritual information. You learn this program by transmitting spiritual information. When you teach it to others repeatedly, this is how you retain the information. And I need to get you to that point as quick as I can. So do you read the chapters with them or just give them a podcast? They listen to my podcasts and they follow along and then you call me when you're done. I don't care what time it is. Just call me. I'd rather you call me early, early, early in the morning, but that's just me. And I want to know, tell me about the chapter. I want to hear what I, what I need to hear. I want to hear that you have a grasp of the chapter. If I don't, I may send you back to listen to the podcast again. I may read it with you. But if I don't hear what I need to hear, you've got work to do. And what are you listening to here? I need to hear that you have an understanding of what's in that chapter. I need to hear that you have an understanding of the allergy, an understanding of the mental twist, an understanding of the effect. In Bill's story, there's all all different things. There's different things I need you to know from each chapter, and I will make those things clear to you. That's how I do it. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, Hannah. That's my. Oh, uh, thanks, you. Hannah. Yeah, thanks, Hannah. And and you know, I'll just say that as as punishment, he'll he'll make you listen to his podcast over and over, which is yeah. <laughs> thank you. Hi, <laughs> hey, right. Carolyn, thanks so much. We yeah, let me let me thank you so much for uh for your generosity this morning. It was terrific. And I'm gonna give you as a matter of fact, I'm gonna give you guys the uh 
the share ID for, for Harlan's presentation this morning, August 14th. That number is uh, 19,294. That's 19294. And so we're going to, uh, as soon as I get to the uh, page 164, we're going to close with the reading from page 164 as we do. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. Then we're going to get, uh, when we end the meeting, we're going to get Harlan's contact information. Okay. So from 164, <clears throat> our book is meant, <clears throat> excuse me, our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize you know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order, but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.